1: Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Kate Forbes, one of the candidates to be the next leader of the SNP and the next First Minister of Scotland. That contest um, will be all concluded in about a month's time. Um, So before we come on uh, to Kate Forbes, just uh, I've got a couple of guests to announce for the live shows that you may not be aware of. Um, So my next few guests at the Duchess Theatre on Monday the 6th of March uh, is Eddie Izzard. On Monday the 20th of March, my guest is Krishnan Guru Murthy. On Monday, the 3rd of April, Ruth Davidson. On Monday, the 17th of April, I'm on the verge of being able to announce that. On Monday, the 22nd of May, my guest is David Blunkett. And on Monday, the 5th of June, my guest is Philip Hammond, uh, I've just announced, which is fantastic. Um, I've not had Philip on the show before. Uh, Of course, he was Chancellor under Theresa May, a leading figure in the Tory party during a particularly tumultuous period, even for the Tory party and for the country. And doesn't give that many interviews, so that it will be really, really special. But so many different wonderful guests there. I'll put a link, as always, to where you can buy tickets in the blurb uh, in the show notes. But today's guest, Kate Forbes, is standing to be the next leader of the SNP, the next First Minister of Scotland. And it's an interesting time for the party and for the country. And, of course, for all of us interested in politics to see what happens next and what direction uh, the party and what direction the Scottish government goes in. And, of course, you'd have seen a lot of the media coverage in the first week or so has been about Kate uh, and her religious beliefs. And we talk about that, but we talk about a whole load of other things as well. Um, Her view of the economy, her view of independence and how you get there her view of the Scottish government and what it should be doing and just a general discussion about faith. Obviously, it's something I'm interested in, uh, given my um, (laughs) background. My mum was a nun and I used to go to church and now uh, I am, I think it's fair to say, an atheist. But I've always retained a level of respect for it, even though. Um, I have issues with it. And it's just a really interesting conversation. Of course, Kate is 32 uh, and uh, came into politics at a young age, uh, has just had a child, was on maternity leave when all this uh, kicked off. Um, so it's a fascinating discussion with someone who, I think, regardless of what happens in this leadership contest, and she is the favourite both amongst members and the public, um, someone clearly of um, very. It has a real clarity of thought. And I think um, that just makes for a fascinating uh, interview. So enjoy Kate Forbes. Well, Kate, a a few weeks ago, no one would have known that we'd have been in this position. Nicola Sturgeon resigning, apparently at the peak of her powers. And, And more importantly, you're supposed to be on maternity leave.
0: And I'd probably still quite like to be on maternity leave. I uh, saw the news about Nicola Sturgeon resigning as I sat in a circle with other mums playing with colourful ribbons and probably maracas, uh, singing nursery rhymes. So it's all been a bit of a shock to the system.
1: And then how quickly? Uh, so, you know, Nicola Sturgeon, one of the most formidable popular politicians in in the UK, announces she's off. And then how soon after that do you decide, you know, you're sat there, you're not even... In Holyrood at the moment, you, you, as you describe it, a, a group with other mums, how soon do you decide, well, I think I need to put myself forward?
0: Oh, it was a slow process. Bear in mind, I hadn't said anything publicly, really, for about seven months. And that weekend after she resigned, I was sitting at home, just extraordinarily torn about it all. And yet Twitter was going absolutely ballistic, talking about me coming back. It's almost like I had already declared and I think that set the groundwork, incidentally, for a lot of the conversations that and discussions that happened in the following week, but was really torn and it, trying to figure out if somebody else would run or not and whether I really wanted to do it with a, a, a baby. And I guess I settled on the fact that it's, this is for the SNP members to make the decision. I think I've got something to offer, which the other candidates don't, in terms of the, the economic approach, the experience of managing Scotland's finances, and ability to reach out to new voters. So I thought at the end of the day, throw your hat in the ring and it'll be for others to decide whether they want you or not.
1: And I mean, we're used to having all sorts of politicians these days. Uh, Tony Blair was relatively young when he became Prime Minister, but you're 32. You know, most people listening would go, oh, my God, you know, at 32, I mean, I'm 40 now and I feel young. I might not look it. But the thought of putting yourself forward to lead a country at 32 feels like a daunting prospect. Um, has your age been one of the considerations for yourself? Did you think actually maybe I need more life experience or do you think at 32, actually, you, you, you know enough about the world? And I mean you obviously do think you're, you're prepared to do it. Well, I think,
0: you know, at the end of the day, Unless you want to go down the American route where you're not allowed to be president unless you're over the age of 100, there is an alternative approach, which is that you can bring a fresh face, you can bring a bit of energy and a different experience. So why shouldn't young mums with six-month-old babies have something to contribute to our nation and the national debate? Why shouldn't people in their 30s have something to contribute? And that's the nature of democracy, isn't it? That's the beauty of democracy. You don't have to know everything about everything to be able to represent people you do need though to be willing to listen to learn you need humility you need to be able to take on good ideas and for me politics needs to be about teamwork anyway
1: so I mean you were thrown in the deep end in terms of your cabinet career you were elected in 2016 and then you have to deliver the Scottish budget effectively on the day that your predecessor resigns I mean I think Finance ministers all over the world, you know, chancellors of the exchequer, find uh, those democratic chambers intimidating at the best of times when they themselves have written the budget and have spent all year planning it with their civil servants to effectively take on someone else's work. And in the context in which Derek McIde had to resign, must have been very difficult.
0: It was very difficult. So the call came at 7am and bear in mind, I think I was due to stand up and deliver the budget at 2pm. So I had that number of hours to not just cram because there's the basics of you know what are the tax rates going to be and remember that every government keeps things like tax rates extremely tight so there's the cramming part and the budget has a bearing on literally every single government policy so I think when it came to the questions you know people were asking everything from questions about legal aid through to the water system. And you've got to be prepared for that. So, yeah, I guess, you know, baptism of fire.
1: But then I guess, in a way, once you've done that and you did it so ably and, you know, you sort of one plaudits across the political spectrum for, for being able to deliver it with, with you know, the, the manner in which you did it, given the time that you had. That must have given you a, a huge amount of self-confidence just in general.
0: Well, remember a few weeks after that, the world blew up. So that was early February. By March, we were into lockdown. So it went from extremely challenging situation to overwhelming situation with managing Scotland's budget in the context of a pandemic where we were having to make decisions like to procure hundreds of millions of pounds worth of PPE without having any reassurance that the money coming from the UK government. So the levels of risk and pressure actually increased exponentially in the weeks afterwards. So there was no time to sit and reflect on successes or otherwise of getting a budget through because the budget itself was ripped up within a matter of weeks, indeed before the next financial year started. And that kicked off basically two years of just permanent, constant pressure of funding everything from the health service to business support um, and figuring out what was coming from the UK government and what we had to, to, to spend. And so and then we went into the cost of living. So it's no wonder I needed maternity leave to recover.
1: Your uh, UK counterpart, of course, was Rishi Sunak and he went on from the finance brief to, to get the top job at a Westminster level. How was he to deal with? Do you know, I've always found him... Really personable
0: and easy to talk to on a one to one basis. And my approach to government when it came to the money is that whilst publicly I might have condemned how slow things were to be resolved and how little money there was, actually I knew behind the scenes you want to get something done, you need to get it done in good faith, negotiating. And so, actually, over that period of time, there was. A change in chief secretaries, because that was the person that I mostly engaged with, but I actually tried to approach it in a kind of fair way in terms of getting results. And we did get results as a result. You know, we we got um, some uh, additional funding at times it, because ultimately it was people's health that was really on the line. And that was probably more important than two governments having a bust up
1: and your relationship with Nicola Sturgeon obviously she's still first minister but she's on her way out she's uh, really a star of the SNP and the yes movement you know still the most popular politician in 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 Scotland what are your reflections on her leadership and as and on her legacy as she uh, prepares to leave
0: yeah well i i guess probably most of the public are looking at the current leadership contest and thinking bring back nicola because um you know she's incredibly incredibly competent Uh, incredibly able, incredibly talented, and also very conscious of the little people and the need to help individuals and not just the masses. I mean, there's countless stories of how she has sidled up to people and offered them support or worked behind the scenes to get things done. Um, And certainly as a young woman, she is an incredible role model for how to be a woman in that role. You know, there there aren't that many political leaders like her, but she's done it in her own way. She hasn't sought to become someone different. She's not tried to become sort of a male aggressive leader. She's done it in her own way. And that, for me, is quite remarkable.
1: And have you spoken to her since she announced she was going?
0: I messaged her after she announced just to wish her well and say how much I'd appreciated uh, working with her.
1: And she replied?
0: She did, she replied, um, just thanking me and um yeah, and and wishing me well for whatever I chose to do. That was incidentally before I launched.
1: Of course, yes. Uh, and now the campaign is underway and it's you, Ash Regan and, and Hamza Youssef, uh and the uh, the polls open in a couple of weeks, and they will close a couple of weeks after that. It's quite a compressed timetable. You've got a month really, a fortnight effectively, before people get their ballots or can vote online. Um I mean, how do you go about? launching a campaign where you've got to reach... I mean, one of the challenges you've got is the SNP has so many members.
0: Yeah, and, and they're very diverse.
1: Yes, and, and you, you know, you've know got a, a territory that if you want to meet people face-to-face is not always easy to get about. I mean, how do you go about setting a plan for where to target and where to prioritise?
0: Yeah, so there are SNP members, obviously, the length and breadth of Scotland. They are an extremely diverse bunch. If you look at any of the the recent analysis over the nature of the membership... Um, I think The Times reported that it's an average age of about fifty four, and uh, predominantly men, apparently. So the aim is to uh, try and reach people. But ultimately, I think what they want to hear is a clear message. Remember that in the breadth and the diversity of the SNP, the thing that unites everybody, no matter what their vision of government is, the thing that unites them all is independence. And I come from a long-standing SNP family where, You know, my uncle started the local branch in the 70s where there was a membership of about three. So you've got people that have been around for decades and that have been holding on for a long time to get independence. And you've got people that got involved after 2014. So that is a huge breadth of interest. But ultimately, the one uniting factor is independence.
1: And do you differ, do you think, Do the three candidates differ on how you get independence? And and what's your route there? And how does it differ to what Hamza Youssef or or Ash Regan would do?
0: I suppose that the, the key elements for me are that time and time again, people have said they want to see what our economic future looks like. And they want to see government now grappling with the economic challenges that we face and trying to resolve them. So all of us will bring our experience into the contest. I suppose my experience is that economic element. How do we support small businesses to grow, develop, with a view to eradicating poverty? That's my approach, and it's my approach to independence as well. But the second thing I think that I can bring is this willingness and interest in reaching out to new voters. I don't think you can deliver independence without building bridges to people who are not yet persuaded. And to do that, they've got to have confidence in you as a leader. They've got to believe that you have their best interests at heart, and you can't go around calling them names. So that would be the the, the second element I think I bring. Beyond that, in terms of the process, which might have been the root of your question, I think the process is the same, that we build sustained support for independence that puts pressure on any government of the day to allow that democratic process but we need to see that sustained support and you can use elections in that regard you you know i use the next uk government election in 2024 uh, to, to 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 do that to put pressure on but ultimately i think it's about the messaging and the leadership
1: and when you say put pressure would that be the de facto referendum Argument, or would it be a subtle difference? It would be a subtle difference. It would be, a subtle
0: difference. It'd be subtle difference, which is you put independence front and centre, but I don't think you can stop people talking about the economy and cost of living and the NHS, because that's the nature of an
1: election. And do you feel with, with business, it, it feels like maybe, a, a, you know, Nicola Sturgeon had undoubted strengths and, and there are areas where she's very, very popular. Business perhaps was a bit of an Achilles heel for her, specifically maybe for the government wider, that that's something that the SNP as a party needs to address, perhaps being seen to understand the business community more. And I know you've talked about the I want to get the name of it right, the the, the deposit scheme for for bottles. Obviously this has come along at a time and actually costs are just rising. And maybe now this isn't the right time to, to have a policy like this.
0: Well I think it's about helping businesses to weather the storms. Right. So I can talk to you about the importance of economic prosperity, but the organizations and businesses that are actually going to deliver that are the ones that we need to support. And, you know, small, medium sized businesses are the backbone of the Scottish economy, as they are the backbone of the, the wider United Kingdom economy. You have small businesses in every community and see if you support them to grow and to prosper. They are creating local well paid jobs in their local community. They're also contributing to expanding the tax base and the revenue that we can then reinvest in our public services. So. Quite clearly, your listeners will be listening, thinking that's not rocket science. It might not be rocket science, but you've got to do it. You know, you've you got to give businesses the breathing space. They have weathered Brexit. They have weathered COVID. They are weathering the cost of living crisis. Their costs are going up exponentially. I think from government, they, need, they don't necessarily need new fancy policies. They just need a bit of space to get on with survival, keeping people employed, and ultimately emerging stronger and ensuring that they can keep uh, growing. So that would be my view. I actually support the deposit return scheme, not that the headlines would suggest that, but I actually support the principles. I think we should increase recycling. I think it's a good idea. It's about execution, it's about implementation. And if businesses are telling me right now that they just are at the end of their tether, with coping right now i think we just need to just take a step back give them the space let them catch that second wind and let's you know come back to it
1: how hard is it for you i mean i guess this is a question for all three of you but how hard is it for you to um in this race you're trying to differentiate yourselves from each other but you're you're taking over from a leader that's so popular that the membership really likes that the country really likes so you're trying to sort of simultaneously say here's a really popular thing that I was a part of, but I would do things differently. You know, it must be all three of you in a way are trying to sort of simultaneously be continuity and change at the same time. I mean, maybe that's not true. How do you um, manage that that challenge?
0: So I think we do need a break with continuity because none of us are Nicola Sturgeon. So pretending to be doesn't cut it. We obviously need change. The issues that Scotland is grappling with right now, the issues that the rest of the UK are grappling with, low growth, low productivity, high inflation, high costs, challenges around labour market, challenges around skills. You know, We can all write a list of the challenges that we're grappling with. But it's going to require a bit of a reset and a new approach to actually deal with these issues. and. I think that's where I would say Nicola Sturgeon was an exceptional politician, an exceptional leader. I have enormous respect for her. I'm not her. What I bring is a slightly different approach to the economy, the experience of managing our budget. I bring a fresh face, which is not a bad thing, and a real interest in reaching people that don't currently support us because if we don't do that, we're just gonna keep shuffling the chairs. We're still we're gonna keep having internal conversations about process and how to get to independence. We all want to get to independence, but we need to be able to persuade others as well. And so it's, it is a break with the last few years, not because there's a problem with the last few years, but they were right for the moment. Now we need to look to the future. How do we lead Scotland to better days?
1: And is part of that maybe a shift in in emphasis uh, and, and not just policy? But, I mean, I totally understand why if you're Nicola Sturgeon and you come so close in 2014 and then you become First Minister and then it, literally every election you were just home runs every time and just mega majorities in Holyrood and Westminster and everything is about the constitution that actually had the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon been slightly less vocal about the... You know, everyone knows that Nicola Sturgeon wants independence and that the party wants that. But perhaps if the constitution featured a little less in the conversation that people who'd voted no less time last time might actually be more, um, you know, more willing to, to, to go on a journey with the party itself.
0: I think it's, it's more than that. I think it's not about what you hear or what words feature in the debate. It's about seeing. And I hope that doesn't sound too cryptic, but if I take, families in my own constituency I'm speaking to you from Dingwall epicenter of civilization and families in Dingwall right now don't know how they'll afford next month's energy bill but just down the road we've got the port of Cromarty Firth one of the most critical parts of the infrastructure when it comes to the oil and gas industry so you tell me the logic of living under the shade of renewables living down the road from areas and businesses that have are still acquiring huge profits and you're a carer and you can't afford to pay your bill it doesn't add up now for me the answer is policy around energy has been reserved to Westminster and isn't taking into account the families and the households across Scotland That's the logic. I don't need to necessarily tell you it's all about independence, but I happen to think that decisions that are taken close to the people affected are better for having been taken close to the people that are affected. That, for me, is therefore about independence, but it's about wider decentralisation of power and it's about empowerment of ordinary people to make decisions. That's a lot of waffle to really mean that people need to see the value of independence. You can't just use it as an abstract, technical, constitutional term.
1: And is there also a sense that for all the popularity, for all the public support, actually the government could have done a bit more, the Scottish government could have done a bit more and and, and perhaps now is the time to to almost have a phase of real delivery and to use the powers and to, to really do stuff for people?
0: I don't think the problem is with the policies and the ideas I think the mission now is to deliver government can't prioritize everything you know the very definition of prioritization is to select certain things that you deem more important and I've managed the budget the budget doesn't allow us to do everything it's a fixed budget so it's identifying what are we saying we're going to do and then do it so for me taking a step back it's all about eradicating poverty through economic prosperity that those are the two uh, northern lights as it were and we can do that but we need to identify the areas that need infrastructure uh, investment we need to recognize the importance of expanding the tax base that means attracting people to come live and work in scotland it means that we need to ensure that the investment that we're making in our public services let's take the nhs it's going to the front line it's not getting s- stuck in bureaucratic, overly complex processes that actually don't make a difference to the person who's waiting in A&E. So, in a sense, it's not about new fancy policies. It's about, well, let's ensure we're delivering what we say we're going to do, and we're doing it in an effective and efficient way, which, incidentally, doesn't sound that exciting when it comes to a big political speech.
1: But I that think it sounds very exciting. I genuinely was just saying that sounds really exciting, because... Firstly, Scotland's a place that I would hope to live one day for for a multitude of reasons. It's a beautiful place. And I I just wonder then, when you talk about attracting people to Scotland, you know, sometimes in political terms, people might say, well, that's just about offering tax breaks. But is is it about more than that? How do you attract people, talent, capital investment to Scotland when perhaps those investors or those individuals might be looking at other parts of the UK or, or other parts of Europe?
0: There's a number of different ways. I think the first is being clear about what we're about. Uh, let's take that in economic terms. I spoke to uh, uh, an entrepreneur a few months ago who operates in the hydrogen business. He's relocated to Scotland. He chose Scotland over anywhere else in Europe because he thinks that we've got a clear strategy when it comes to hydrogen. So there's a clarity required about what we're about, an excitement, a buzz, that you know we're serious about this industry and it's exciting to be here. When it comes to renewables, Scotland is the place to be. We've got all this sort of talent, uh, investment, infrastructure when it comes to oil and gas, that's gonna shift to renewables. This is the place to be. But for those not operating in that kind of industry, it's about the work-life balance. So I don't think it's about, it's about tax. It's about the quality of education. It's about the quality of your public services. I'm a new mum, right? And I'm a mum before I'm a politician. What I want for my daughter, is the knowledge that she will grow up safe, secure, with all the opportunities at her fingertips, the ability to do whatever she wants, and is fully supported in in that. And I think that's ultimately what people want. They either want it for their kids or they want it for themselves. And we can do that. We can achieve that with good governance. think if you look at other small countries, perhaps, that you could use as comparators... They're generally wealthier, they're generally fairer, they're generally greener than the UK. Why? Because they have nimble decision-making processes. They can move quickly. You know, when there's a problem, they can resolve it. In Scotland, we're a country of 5 million people. We can get everyone around the table on a particular issue that we need to get around the table quite quickly because we're a small country. We can make nimble decisions and we can also prioritise uh, the, the important issues. Um, so hopefully that that makes sense.
1: Is there a danger as well that I mean, we, and we saw with Brexit, one thing that businesses hate is uncertainty. It's just not knowing. You know, going through all those the, the the Theresa May period, it wasn't necessarily that we were going to be in or out of the EU, but obviously the business community was was broadly pro EU. It, it was the uncertainty caused by that, and that perhaps the the constitutional debate may have actually uh, been uh, had a negative effect on inward investment because some businesses might say, "I can't base myself in Scotland at the moment because if you end up with a hard border with England, that's just going to make it." very difficult for me. I
0: think first of all, businesses right now are now assuming that uncertainties become the status quo. So back let's say in 2014, the status quo was pretty safe and straightforward and pretty solid. That's gone. You know, we've we've had the uncertainties of, of Brexit. I mean we're talking right now whilst protocols around Brexit are being renegotiated. So you know, there, it feels like there's not much stable ground at the moment for, for businesses. Um, but secondly, I think we can be really clear as a government about what we intend to do. So we can be clear what we're going to do when it comes to our economy, the regulatory environment, the tax environment, the infrastructure environment. So these are the three things that businesses need to prosper. They need to infrastructure in terms of roads transport you know uh, digital they need a pretty stable tax environment Uh, we've got a very attractive non-domestic rates regime and they also need uh, a regulatory environment that doesn't increase the cumulative burdens which was one of the themes coming out of my uh, pitch as it were let's not just keep adding more and more burdens from a public health perspective, environmental health perspective, important though they are, let's be clear about what we expect from business. And I think that makes a big difference when it comes to a business trying to operate successfully.
1: Are you slightly distinct then from perhaps some of the other leading SNP voices, maybe in the post-2014 landscape, in that your vision of an independent Scotland would be actually quite low low tax when it comes to trying to attract investment and, and have it as a business, you know, friendly country.
0: I would call it obviously fair tax, not low tax, because I think at the moment it's low growth that is driving sort of erratic tax decisions. So, Liz Truss thought that low tax was the answer to low growth and didn't last terribly long. So it's, that's quite instructive, isn't it? I would say that in a fair society where we allow business to prosper, it actually becomes less about taxation. Important though, taxes. I think taxes needs to be stable and fair. That matters more uh, than anything else. But it's actually the the ease with which they can get to market and access supply chains that probably matters more than than taxation, eh, as important as it is. People often say, you know, critics will say Scotland's the highest tax part of the UK when it comes to income tax. Wait a minute. Council tax is on average lower. Non-domestic rates, poundage is lower. You know, there's a lot of tools in the the tax toolbox and it's about how they interact to incentivize growth
1: and do you would you be concerned about in a way it's the transition period isn't it that, that i think worries people is that they might say Look, i want to leave the uk and i believe that eventually we would build a country that was fairer greener more nimble all the things that you described but there will be a period of time where uh the public finances take hits as a result of not being in the UK, where there's a level of uncertainty, where the costs of setting up a new country and a central bank and all those things mean that we'll either have to put taxes up or cut public services or whatever. And, and and there is a period in which people say, well, that could be 5, 10, 15 years of my life that are really, really difficult. Is it worth it to get to that end goal? I mean, how do you reassure people about that, effectively, that initial period and how however long it might be?
0: So I'm a realist. I know that success is not inevitable, but success is far more likely with the right policies and the right leadership. So I think there is a transition there where we establish our key bodies and organisations, a central bank, a national debt office. There's a process there of establishing those and then transitioning. But Again, i go back to understanding and seeing what the opportunities are. There are huge opportunities when it comes to Scotland's potential to export to the rest of the world, Scotland to continue to export to the rest of the UK, and Brexit has actually been quite instructive for what not to do. You know, last minute, far more red tape, hamstringing businesses, That's the reality they see right now. I think with the right orderly transition to independence, with the right approach and policies, with the support in place for businesses, yes, there would be uncertainty. You know, I'm I'm a realist, there is uncertainty, but I think we could do it in a way that minimized the, the difficulties and actually the opportunities would outweigh the challenges. But I go back to where I said, started. I'm not saying that's inevitable. That comes around with careful planning, a clear vision, and a, a clear willingness to work with other parties, not least the UK government.
1: I mean, do you think that's perhaps something that the Yes campaign didn't have in 2014? I mean, I, re- I realized we we're talking about something that was back when you were about 15 or whatever it was, you know. It was almost 10 years ago now, the Yes campaign, the referendum, sorry. So I realised these are things um, that were taken while you were probably still studying. But just thinking about the case for independence, do you think that's something that perhaps hasn't been as strong as the other the elements of it?
0: I, I think it was strong in 2014. I think 2014, you're speaking to me as a generation that has now grown up with thinking that independence is normal, I think 2014 was about normalising independence. There were many people who believed in it. There were many people who hadn't considered it. Some voted yes, some did not. We now have a position where independence is normal. So in a sense, we move the conversation on to not just persuading you to even contemplate independence as a prospect, to saying, well, what kind of independence do you want? And I think that's where the debate has shifted. And obviously I've already said that there's been quite a lot of other changes and developments in the last X number of years which have completely changed the landscape. So it's a different debate now
1: than it was then. And, it, and thinking ahead to any future referendum, what what should the a, a yes campaign if it's yes or remain or whatever you know the leave whatever the word it may be and, and whenever it may come. what are the lessons you can learn from 2014 in terms of the things that you would do better?
0: I think the first thing is that we need to focus on the fact that in Scotland, quite a lot of views are already entrenched. So we need to work harder, I think, at reaching people who um, who need to be persuaded. I think that's the first thing. I think secondly, the economic prospect prospectus needs to be watertight. I think it needs to be clear and upfront about what the opportunities are, what the options are. At what a government's preferred route might be but recognizing that independence is about sovereignty and once you're a sovereign nation the country will elect governments that reflect their wishes so you know there's two stages you can set out your vision for independence bearing in mind that in the event of independence another government might make different decisions about what to do around economic policy or trade policy and so on so I think that would be the second thing that, you know we need to be clear about our economic uh, prospectus and things have changed renewables is a much bigger deal than it was uh, and so on the, the the existing relationship with Europe has changed so I think these uh, elements need to be updated but I come back to the position that I think a lot of people whether they vote yes or no believe in Scotland's future and want to see Scotland flourish. The job for us is to say well Scotland will flourish more as an independent nation than not
2: Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
1: So do you have a sense then, I mean, ahead of this contest as well, and now that you're in it, of the diversity of views within the SNP about what an independent Scotland would be? Because, as you say, the strength of the party is that's the one thing that everyone's got in common, but there must be just, well, almost 100,000 different views on what an independent Scotland should look like. And how do you how do you herd those all together?
0: Yeah, there's there's value in that diversity, though, because uniformity of view I think becomes an enormous problem in democracy. One of the bigger challenges I have about our democratic debates right now is that they're not truly representative of the diversity of view. By that I mean for democracy to flourish it needs to be a place for debate. For debate to exist you need to have disagreement. For disagreement to exist you and I have to be willing to have a civil conversation from areas of difference. And we see that exist actually within the SNP, but it needs to be allowed to flourish and come out. So difference is not a problem that should be suppressed. Difference actually will improve the offer that we make to, to the people of Scotland. And I think helps us to point out That our vision reflects the diversity of views across Scotland. So there is diversity, there is difference. Look, I've students sat in more branch meetings than probably most people have because I've got such a large constituency. There's a huge diversity of view. You get two SNP members together and they'll have differences of opinion. I think we should celebrate that and not
1: suppress it. And do you think other party members feel the same? And and perhaps there's been a sense that that's not always been the way that the SNP leadership has represented them.
0: I do think that decisions need to be taken by a much broader group of people, not just within the SNP, but actually beyond. There's a lot of people with a vested interest in Scotland's future being successful, and obviously the SNP is the largest entity when it comes to the Yes movement, and is the party of governments. It's got a responsibility to lead, but there is an absolutely critical and urgent need to get back to the grassroots and to listen to what they are saying. Now, there was going to be, of course, a conference, a special conference on independence. I think Hamza has suggested sort of a, a national or regionalized conversation. I certainly think that we need to have that discussion at branch level and beyond. Obviously, conference has always traditionally been where party policy is established. But when you've got a party membership of, let's say, over 100,000, you have to have mechanisms to listen to all the the, the local branches um, as well uh, as that. And I think most of them will be persuaded, too, that the route to independence is the route that is most likely to deliver independence, which is when a majority support independence, But I think there's been a frustration at the moment, and perhaps that's what you're seeing in some of the requests for more urgency. There's been a frustration that their voices haven't been heard.
1: And what about the culture of Scottish politics? Let's start maybe specifically with the SNP, where you had a situation where the leader of the party in the country is married to the chief exec. Now, obviously, people meet at work, they fall in love, that happens. You know, so many people who've worked for political parties will find their spouse that way. Why should the rules be any different for Nicola Sturgeon and Peter Morrill? But... Obviously, in time, it starts to create an impression that things are cosy or, you know, the parties have the financial issues that, that that it's had, that then things start to look quite difficult. I mean, what's your view on Peter Morrill's future and how appropriate it was to have a leader and a chief exec that were, well, married, living in the same house?
0: Yeah, which is why, of course, I married a chimney sweep. It's much safer. And you get your chimney swept for free. So when it comes to the SMP. The, the future of of headquarters and those who work in headquarters and chief executive and so on is is really an issue for them. But one of the points that's been made repeatedly, I think, over this contest is the need for fresh faces. I grew up in the generation where John Swinney, Nicholas Sturgeon, you know, Angus Robertson were the heroes of the day. They were people that you had seen on TV. You had never necessarily spoken to them, but they were the heroes of the day. You know, I remember standing around the, I will answer your question in a moment, but remember standing around the radio in 2007 when it was announced that the SNP would be the party of government. And it was just remarkable. But I knew the SNP as basically on, on the media. So there's a distance. I'm of a generation that has grown up with these leaders, these esteemed leaders, leading the movement for decades. And the baton needs to be passed on. And I think if that's true of the leadership of the SNP and it needs to be true of how headquarters supports that new leader as well, because we need new ways of doing things for a new generation.
1: And as a candidate, is it difficult for you when, if you're seen to be perhaps not the preferred candidate of anyone, and I, I don't mean that specifically to you, but just a, a, any one candidate in any one election who might feel that actually they are not the preferred candidate of whoever, to then have uh, someone involved in the process, the chief executive of a party, who may you may perceive to be on the other side, it, it, does that not necessarily call into question the integrity of the result, but but... Is that a concern you would have in any hypothetical contest as a candidate?
0: I mean, I'm pretty relaxed in that I have a fair degree of confidence in the process. I have a lot of confidence that that there are enough people involved in the process for it to be fair. And my bottom line is, I guess, if we're going to have 100,000 SNP members voting, they need to have confidence and they would be jolly well cheesed off if there was any questions about the process not being honest and fair. So I guess I've got confidence both in the processes, but I've got a bigger confidence in members who are not going to tolerate anything less than a fair and free process.
1: You're the front-runner now amongst members and, and amongst the public, according to a number of polls that I've read in in, in the media this morning. Um. Does that surprise you, given the last fortnight?
0: It does, actually, yeah. It does surprise me. Um, I'm still here. I okay. guess some people wondered if I'd make it to the end of week one.
1: But we're here talking to you. And did you, has it in the last week or two, crossed your mind that maybe this is something you don't want to be a, a part of, given the media coverage of the last few days? no. But
0: I have been obviously in frontline politics now for six years and one of the things I have always sought to do, and this has caused me some sadness and pain in the last week, one of the things I've always sought to do is to try and represent people, wherever they come from, whoever they are, whatever their concerns are, to represent them without prejudice and to represent them faithfully and it's caused me, as you can imagine, some degree of a uh, deep sadness that that reputation for representing people faithfully, for putting their interest and their needs first, that obviously that's been the subject to debate and the sadness is not born of me feeling like I've been unfairly treated, that's not what I'm saying i'm saying that the sadness is born of from of people who who felt i was their friend i was their representative feeling like i don't understand the the difficulties and the challenges that they face as a member of a minority group living in scotland um and you know we've obviously come a long way in scotland it's a lot more tolerant it's a lot more liberal than it was And I hope it's a place where minorities feel safer. And that's probably what's caused me the quite deep sadness that my comments or my approach has in any way made people feel like Scotland isn't that tolerant and pluralistic society that they thought it was.
1: Did you expect, I mean, you must have perhaps expected your faith to be talked about at some point, but do you expect it to be quite, such an intense focus so early on in the campaign?
0: I knew it would be subject to questioning. And I thought that by being open and not prevaricating, that might give people confidence, perhaps ironically, in light of the way things have panned out, give people confidence that I could both hold a faith and indeed be a person in a minority community myself but wholeheartedly believe in the importance of a pluralistic and tolerant society. And I suppose I thought that, again, my track record of, say, steering three budgets through the Scottish Parliament would speak for itself, that I've never made financial decisions on the basis of faith. I've always delivered in full confidence budgets that serve all communities in Scotland and reach every individual in Scotland on the basis of fairness and compassion and I think that's what I now need to identify is that the person who introduced those budgets is actually the person who's going for first minister as well.
1: Do you think in a way that the, the, the flip side of all this is that for, for for all the intense reaction you know online and, and in the media that, that 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 central principle that you set yourself that you wanted to communicate in, a, in an honest and open way, actually is part of the reason why you're leading in the polls. Is that for all the first people say, well, it, whether I agree with Kate Forbes or not, there is something refreshing about watching a politician really answer a question, a difficult question, a direct question, honestly. And that it may have felt like that was a disadvantage in the last seven days, but going forward, actually, this could be a huge advantage for you.
0: Well, I would hope it means that people believe what I see and can trust me when I say it. And I think one media headline had suggested that I should have lied for convenience. And I think we are all sick to our back teeth of lying, prevaricating, spinning politicians whose sole interest is their own career. And I said last week in in an opinion piece I did for the Times, But I am willing to be honest at the cost of my career, which may surprise you, but I felt it important that when a direct question came, I answered it directly. Now, some have said I should have answered it with more compassion, and I am very willing to to listen and take that on board, but ensuring that there's greater compassion, because I I, I think condemnation is abhorrent. So there's a lesson there for me about having more humanity and more compassion. But it was a direct question. And I could have prevaricated forever in a day, or just given a straight answer, which was to my cost. And that's what I did.
1: Do you think in, in Scotland and in, in just in the UK widely, we have a strange relationship with faith and and specifically with with Christianity? And that you know, in so many ways, the UK and, and Scotland is a country of faith of various faiths uh, all of which have various views on sex before marriage on gay relationships and all sorts of things and and we know that this is effectively part of our mainstream and yet in politics we 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 have a strange we almost don't want to talk about it and then in a way that makes us all hypocrites because you know we have, my mum was a nun you know i grew up going to church whatever my views are now but you know i have a huge amount of respect for the institutions and, and for the people who go, regardless of what my current opinions might be. And I just think it's really odd that, on on the one hand, um, you know, we, we have this faith in our country, but on the other hand, we, we don't want to go near what that sometimes actually means in terms of what people believe. And in a way, your honesty about what you believe and, and the interviews that you've given in the last week have, in a way, provoked, I think, something beyond the SNP leadership content. I think a, a, a discussion across the whole of the UK about... Faith in our society and and what it actually means. And I don't know, haven't we become too squeamish about the church? I think there
0: might be an element of that. And obviously, you know, compared with even our generation, and I'm being kind to you. You to are being that, very
1: kind, yeah.
0: <laughs> our generation perhaps grew up at the tail end of, say, going to Sunday school. The generation before definitely went to Sunday school. So there I think is an an illiteracy problem, too, about what faith really means and where the, the boundaries of church start and stop and what the sort of total package is. Because, you know, faith motivated my parents <laughs> to literally forego their careers, their incomes, their safety and security for about 20 years and served some of the poorest communities in India so I grew up seeing that the extension of faith was public duty and sacrifice and honesty and integrity and so on and that for me is what dominated rather than necessarily teachings about sexuality and marriage and so on and I think there is a question there about literacy. But there's a much bigger question that I think all of us should be concerned about, and that is freedom of speech. So this old-fashioned notion that you and I may disagree, but I absolutely 100% defend your right to have your say, to practice your faith or your non-faith, to express yourself in the way that you choose, and you will not be cancelled for it. And you can sit here and you can offend me, as you might want, considering what I'm wearing today. You might do that. And and I will sit here and defend your right to do that. And that's what came out of the Reformation, because that initiated a period of the Enlightenment where the fair and free exchange of ideas actually meant that society flourished the pursuit of science, the pursuit of you know literature the pursuit of so many of these disciplines which is actually then given birth to the freedoms that we enjoy today and also the culture that we enjoy today so I think the cornerstone is whatever you think about life none of us are neutral we all come with our baggage our, our past our future our experiences our, our parents our family we all come with that we're not neutral and there's a false impression that there are some leaders who are neutral we are not neutral but there is great sort of there's great diversity in that but there's something to be celebrated in that and we can only celebrate if you and I are willing to defend each other's rights to speech.
1: The challenge often for people of faith particularly those who are observant uh, and Uh, go to mass and things, this is usually for Catholics, I suppose, but it applies to the free church as well, is how much of that are you fully wedded to? And, you know, I I went to church. There was actually a multitude of people. I, I went to Catholic church for a bit and then Church of England. And people ranged. You know, they would sit in the same church every Sunday, listen to the same sermon, sing the same hymns, but they would take actually different... They would sort of pick and choose a little bit. They'd say, well, actually, the, get, the sex before marriage thing I don't believe in, or, or the the view of women serving in the clergy was one that they could take... And they'd all sit together, and they'd all, you know, they're broadly on the same track. So then I guess the question for people of faith is, why, in a you know, in the society of 2023 in which we live, which uh, I think we all accept is, uh, you know, progressive and and that that's a good thing why haven't you cherry-picked in the way that perhaps other people might have
0: and others will say that I've cherry-picked too much so the person on my left might say you are not cherry-picking and the person on my right might say she's a total liberal have you heard what she thinks welcome to the communities
1: of faith and how would you classify yourself do you think of yourself as a liberal
0: I do. I've grown up in a country where the dominant religion was Hinduism, where there were Islamic minorities and even smaller Christian minorities, where we all got on together. I went to Indian school for a few years where the two questions that anyone would ask when they met you, I'm talking about being 10 years old, was what's your name and what religion are you? There was an expectation that you'd have religious faith. And my best friends were Sikh because I was in Punjab and we got on like, we got on well, you know, we, 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 we were best friends. Um, and so I grew up being able to befriend and appreciate somebody else's culture and their heritage and their history and their background. And so difference has always been part of my, my life. You know, I, I think Scotland is a secular country. It's a liberal, secular country with sort of a, a social democratic system, and I love it.
1: And you know, thinking about the, the coverage in the last week, where some people have said that you're homophobic, how does that make you feel? As you know, as a, as a liberal young woman in Scotland, to be to be told that your views are homophobic or prejudiced, I mean, do you have some sympathy with how people feel? Or is that an unfair mischaracterisation of your beliefs?
0: I think it comes back to this point that people feel I've not understood how challenging it is to be a minority in Scotland. And on that basis, the job is mine to listen, to learn, to build bridges and to ensure that they can have confidence in me That I am not going to in any way erode the rights that they have, and actually will continue to support their rights in a social liberal country. That I think is the is is my response to accusations like that.
1: And you had a number of colleagues who were supporting your bid, and then withdrew their support quite early on as a result of the of the um you know, the things that had been said. I mean, they must have known that you remember the Free Church. They must have known that the, the beliefs you held as a result of that. I mean, it must have been quite hurtful to see them effectively desert you so easily.
0: I mean, it was a challenging few days, to put it mildly. But I have always been open. I, in the last, in the first election I stood in 2016, obviously there were questions about my faith locally. So this is not the first time that I have had to answer questions in hustings. Just so happens that now it's on a national, international level. And in 2016, these issues were discussed. I won that election. And in the following five years, I was very open when I was asked. But I've always sought to be open in a way that doesn't sound like I'm condemnatory. And I've not always been successful at that because it's quite a difficult line to tread. But in 2021, in full knowledge of my faith, I got one of the biggest majorities in Scotland. And I don't say that as you know, from a position of pride. I say that as a from a position of people knew that they'd seen my track record. They knew that they could trust me. They knew that when they came to my surgeries with an issue that affected them as in a minority, that I would work night and day. To get results for them. And they also could see the job of work I'd done as, as finance secretary, not making distinctions on the basis of who somebody is or where they're from or any of their protected characteristics. There's a budget there for them. And I protected that budget and delivered that budget because I want them to live in a way that leads to them flourishing.
1: And just thinking broader about questions of faith beyond this, um, yeah, obviously in the Bible, people have their faith tested, you know, it happens on a daily basis. It's a constant challenge for, for people of any faith to sometimes when they see the world in the way it is with, with the unfairness and the inequality and the, the terrible things that disproportionately um, affect people in, in the most deprived parts of the planet to wonder what the point of all this is, if there really is a God. I mean, it, it, do you, what are the things that test your faith if in fact they exist?
0: everything life does doesn't it i mean all of us i imagine have been through bereavements we've lost loved ones we've seen family members in poor health life is full of challenges i had a very difficult birth so i i gave birth six months ago um, and that process was very difficult so i had a period afterwards um, i've never had particular challenges with mental health but um, it severely affected my mental health afterwards. Um, and it was diagnosed with postnatal depression. And it's funny because in the last week when things have been really difficult, I keep thinking, Do you know what? It still wasn't as hard as that period after birth. And for anyone that's been through it, you're you're just consumed with despair. And your brain is all over the place in terms of trying to figure out what's real, what's not real, what's true, what's not true that massively challenges my outlook. And yet it's my greatest comfort. It gets me through that. And that has, you know, in the last two years, I've married a a widower with three teenage stepdaughters. We've all had to adjust to living together as a family. That's a test of my faith, but it's been the greatest source of comfort too. So like everyone else, my life is up and down. And it's full of weird and wonderful situations. And life is never simple. It's not a formula that if you do the right thing, you'll get a great outcome. That's not the way that, that life works.
1: And what for people who don't have faith? I mean, this is something that I've struggled with since I you know, stopped going to church and stuff. Is there is something that faith gives you. It gives you a resilience. It gives you a hope on a daily basis. It energizes and motivates people in a way that I think nothing else really does. And obviously love does, but there's something about faith that does. I have to accept, you know, it has kept family members and friends going through the most difficult times. And and we know this globally. What can people who don't affect, how do people who don't have that get that without having to effectively have faith? Is it possible? Is there a way to distill what Christianity or Islam gives you for for atheism without having to believe in a higher thing? or Are the two just completely not possible? Maybe politics, (laughs) is it?
0: Well, that's it, actually. We all believe in something. You know, there's no vacuum. We believe in... in, in all of us have a, a system, a moral compass of sorts. And politicians, more than anyone else, believe in three things. One, the world is not the way it should be. Two, there is a means to fix it. And three... We will do difficult things, even to the cost of our own health and family and happiness, to try and get a result. That's operating with a system of faith. And obviously, everybody's got an outlook, an ideal, ideology. So I don't believe that there is a vacuum. Everybody has got an outlook.
1: And just thinking about, you know, some of the things that are currently swirling around the politics of Scotland and the UK, the, the gender recognition changes that that Nicola Sturgeon wanted to bring in. I mean, is there a slight challenge? I mean, obviously, everything gets put through the Constitution. And I, I think that that isn't helpful when it comes to things like, effectively, matters of conscience or, or issues of women's rights. But is a slight challenge that, that there will be SNP members and people in Scotland that say, in a way, thank God Rishi Sunak intervened. With the Section 35, or which I always get mixed up with Section 30 or Section 35. But in a way, thank God that the, the UK government was there to stop that bill going through. And we've seen what's happened since with, with particular uh, uh, prisoners. That in a way, it, 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 there's been a, a sort of cost to the, the case of independence as, as a result of all this. I think, I
0: mean, my approach is that I don't think the UK government should ever intervene because uh, devolution matters. And we've got a government that keeps eroding that devolution and independence is ultimately the answer. And if Scotland is to be independent, we've got to be able to figure out difficult issues on our own. So on this, we've got to be able to figure out the next steps without having to sort of consider what the UK government's position is on things. Um, Because we've seen it again in the last few days with the deposit return scheme, where they're saying they won't grant permission under the Internal Markets Bill because it will create trade barriers between products in Scotland and products in the rest of the UK. So I do think that the UK government is is identifying difficult issues and knowing that they can press a few buttons. We've got to be able to fix it on our own, and we've got to be able to. Surely we can be. We can. We can listen. There is a way forward. I'm. I'm. I so believe that there is a way forward. That does not stigmatize the trans community, you know, that that recognizes the importance of supporting them, ensuring that there are processes in place that are are, are, are not onerous and not uh, sort of stigmatizing, and also giving confidence to women and girls that their safe places are 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 safe. And I say that as a mum, a we girl. We need to be able to figure it out ourselves. I think we have the ability to figure it out ourselves because plenty of other small countries can figure it out themselves. And it's about really the, the 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 debate, the quality of the debate, the willingness to listen to views that you don't agree with, and I think there is a way forward.
1: You may be first minister in a month from now. Uh, there's only a few weeks really of, of the campaign left. I think it's announced on March the 27th. Whoever the winner is, let's say you, that happens. And at the moment, you, you are the front runner um, uh, amongst the amongst the public and amongst the members. Do you have a view of um, what the first hundred days are? What the first ten days are? Um, and, and what, what you know, what would the first week of uh, a, of a Forbes first ministership look like?
0: The first thing that I would do is to look at how we help families and businesses weather the cost of living crisis. That for me is number one, and for businesses, that's reducing the cumulative burdens that we could do immediately. I think. Um, for households, I think we need to get better at getting support to them quickly. Uh, and that includes things like around energy bills. That is a massive focus. On the, the, the NHS and public services, I think it's about identifying the basics, which is delayed discharge, is causing uh, severe uh, and deep problems. So before we start talking about the big future of the NHS, it's about delayed discharge. It's about operating in a way that tries to reduce delayed discharge as quickly as possible. We did it almost overnight during COVID. It was very costly, but we managed to do it. I think we need to get a bit of that same sort of speed, urgency and creative thinking right now because we are in an extremely challenging position. Those are my two big things that I would
1: do in uh, day one. And just thinking about what your pitch is to to the party and to the country, what are the dividing lines between you, Hamza Yusuf, and Asher Egan, and and what do you offer that, that they don't?
0: I offer three things. Day one, we set up a campaign team in the party to ensure that they are night and day over the next... 18 months before the next election, working on campaigning for independence. Secondly, I make the case for uh, the economy to be front and centre and to ensure that we reset the economic work we're doing to demonstrate how Scotland could be a prosperous economic country. And thirdly, I reach out to no voters. Other candidates can speak for themselves, but those would be my sort of three points of attack.
1: Obviously, you haven't, I don't think, I think I'm right to say there haven't been any hustings yet. You haven't done any debates. I mean, is there, it, it, I'm always fascinated by what goes on behind the scenes. It, 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 do you have contact with the other campaigns? Are there any sort of, uh, you know, informal uh, bits of communication going on?
0: Uh, not particularly, no. I phoned Hamza after I heard he was going to stand to wish him well. I also phoned Ash to wish her well when I heard that she was standing. Though it happened before I, I launched so that's really the only contact I've had. And I do really wish them
1: well. I mean, it must be so difficult going into a leadership. Because, you know, you're all members of the SNP. You all want the SNP to do well. You all want independence. Is there a sense of um, foreboding, not foreboding perhaps, but maybe a slight worry about what may come when you get into debates and you're having to perhaps, you know, attack each other in a regard?
0: I think there's a way of demonstrating what you're going to offer without tearing strips off one another you may think that's wishful thinking after the last week but hey i'll let your listeners make up their minds um i think there's a way of doing that i think there's a do you know people are are just looking for a vision right now i keep going back to what ordinary people are struggling with and they're really struggling with their wages being eaten away by cost by inflation they're struggling with their bills you know, these are the worries. My stepdaughters are off school today because of a strike. That's what families are grappling with. I think they're sick of politicians tearing strips off each other, not least of the Tory Party Tory Party eh, contest. So, good vision, good leadership, commitment to delivery. I think they can get behind that.
1: And are you are you sort of steaming yourself for the for the coming weeks for the for the next two to four weeks? Do you? I mean, it sounds like as a result of your life and you talk about the birth of of your daughter that actually you possess a great amount of resilience, the sorts of resilience required to go through a contest like this.
0: Well, I'm still here a week in and I think most people thought I'd quit last Tuesday. So I'm still here. But yes, I, I strongly believe in in what I have to offer. And what I have to offer, I think, is a refreshed approach to government and a refreshed approach to independence. And I have great confidence in the people of the SNP making the decision. They may choose that that's what they want. They may choose that's not what they want. That's okay because that's democracy.
1: Well, Kate, the the next uh, few weeks will be very interesting uh, for you for you especially. Um, Thank you so much for this. And if you become you become first minister i hope you come back on the show
0: i'll think about it we'd love to
1: <laughs> thank you very much Great. Well, there you go. Who knows what happens in the coming weeks, but it is really interesting when a party is at a crossroads and the decisions that it that it chooses to make and the way that a party talks to itself at the same time as talking to the country, which uh, can be very difficult, um, but also just getting a sense of the individuals who are going to shape the country in the coming months and years. And uh, I just find it absolutely engrossing and fascinating talking to Kate about a whole range of things. And you can sort of see... Um, well, I guess it depends if Kate wins or not. But you can you can see how things may subtly change in Scottish politics in in the coming months and years, and just what a, what an interesting uh, place it's going to be, and just what if, you know what. There were certain discussions that you find just completely engrossed in, uh, and that was one of them. So hopefully I'll get Hamza Youssef and Ash Regan on as well um, in the coming weeks, and uh, we'll see who wins. But yes, don't forget to come to the Duchess Theatre on the next shows on Monday the 6th of March with Eddie Izzard. Uh, one of the greatest comedians Britain has ever produced and now a Labour campaigner hoping to get elected at the next uh, general election. Thank you for downloading this. Please leave a five-star written review. Tell your friends about it and I'll see you next time. ta